Hi everyone, Drew Pro here from the Broken Brain Podcast. And today we're interviewing my dear friend, Dr. Shonak Patel, as part of our series on pain and addiction. And we're talking to Dr. Patel about his toolbox of regenerative medicine and some of the tools in it, including stem cell therapy and PRP or plate-rich plasma as some options to potentially address and get to the root of pain. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast, where we dive deep into the topics of neuroplasticity, epigenetics, mindfulness, mindset, and functional medicine with the goal of helping you understand how your brain is not broken. I'm your host, Drew Pruitt, and each week my team and I will bring on a new guest who we think can help you improve your brain health, feel better, and live more. This week's guest is my dear friend, Dr. Shona Patel, and he's here to talk to us as part of our series on pain and addiction. And the role that regenerative medicine and therapies like stem cell therapy can play in getting the root of these areas. Dr. Shonak Patel, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Drew. A little bit about your bio. Dr. Shonak Patel is an interventional and functional orthopedic specialist with offices in Los Angeles and Orange County, California. He has a clinical interest in the biomechanical etiology of musculoskeletal injuries and pain conditions and the holistic treatment of whole body continuum with innovative orthobiologic treatments, osteopathic manipulation, and therapeutic exercise. Dr. Patel is board certified in sports medicine, board certified in physical medicine and rehabilitation, and a fellowship trained in interventional pain management. Dr. Patel lectures at medical conferences around the nation, is a clinical assistant professor at the Western University and Turo University Colleges of Osteopathic Medicine, and is an expert instructor for the Interventional Orthopedics Foundation, where he teaches other physicians how to do advanced stem cell treatments and orthobiologic procedures. In addition to a numerous of publications, including journals and book chapters, Dr. Patel is the illustrator, I want to hear more about that. <laughs> and co-author of the recently published Atlas Musculoskeletal Ultrasound Cross-Sectional Anatomy. That's a handful, <laughs> but we're glad to have you here. Basically, all that just tells me you know what the fuck you're talking about. <laughs> Thank you for being here. I super appreciate it. Thank you so much, Drew, for having me. Honestly, this is amazing what you're doing here, and, and I'm just glad to contribute. And we go way back. Way back. First of all, shout out to our friend Nirav, who we met through. Absolutely. Uh, and before we go into all things pain management, stem cells, the landscape of pain that's out there, two stories I want you to tell. True or false, you were in a breakdancing group <laughs> with our friend Nirav and... Uh, yes, true or false? Uh, that, that is true. That is so you're the breakdancing hip-hop doctor. Uh, former breakdancing. <laughs> I mean, even back then, I, I, I was hurting, so I stopped doing that a while ago. <laughs> Uh, one other story actually related to this conversation here. We have a mutual friend, Chris. He got in a really bad surfing accident and he injured his spine and was in pain for quite some time. And then Nirav recommended that he come and see you. Take it from there of what kind of injury did Chris have and what did you do for him uh, to get him better? So, I mean, Chris had a, a fairly typical injury that, that a lot of us face, right? Um, a lot of us are working desk jobs. A lot of us are uh, spending time sitting for a long period of time. All day. All day. Especially if you're an entrepreneur, Chris, financial advisor, incredible guy. Absolutely. 
sitting on a computer all sitting the time, on a computer. right? But then on the weekends, what do we like to do? We like to have some fun. Uh, we like to surf. We like to work out. We like to go and do things. Um, but that that kind of weekend warrior type mentality is what predisposes us to injuries, right? We sit for long hours and then we play. Um, so naturally, a lot of times people have injuries to their back and especially young folks that are uh, doing higher level of activity can injure things like their discs. The, the discs in the back are the shock absorbers, kind of like water balloons completely filled with jelly. And these discs can get tears in them. These discs can bulge. And actually, none of that actually has to equal pain. But in certain circumstances, they can irritate nerves. They can cause pain. Um, and when that occurs... Um, you know, we need to be proactive in treatment for that. So ultimately, I did a treatment to him using his uh, growth factors from his own blood. Um, and I did injections throughout various areas in his spine. Um, and he did some a regimen of physical therapy uh, to really strengthen the muscles around his spine. And, and he did fantastic. I mean, he's a he text. I texted him before this interview, and I said, "Hey, can I tell your story?" And I'll keep your name out of it. He said, "No, use my name because I'm a walking billboard." For these approaches in regenerative medicine, of course, he's a huge fan of yours and recommends you all the time. We're going to talk more specifically about what that treatment was sure. and what does it mean to use growth factors from your own body? Because really, these are all part of the emerging landscape in this category of regenerative medicine. Can, can you break it down really quickly? What do you classify as regenerative medicine? And then I want to talk about where has the need come from? Where is the need of the state of pain that we're in in America. Yeah. So first, uh, regenerative medicine. So regenerative medicine, uh, actually, it's an interesting word. Um, quite frankly, it's a misnomer. Uh, the, the term regenerative medicine came from the fact that we're using your own body's growth factors, your own body's stem cells to try to heal various tissues. And, and we used to think that that's how things worked. But quite frankly, we're now able to use your body's uh, biologics to improve the natural environment of an area, not necessarily regrowing joints, not necessarily reversing the, the, the clock of time or however that phrase goes. More like helping your body do what it normally would do. Correct. Absolutely. Um, so the regenerative medicine term is kind of a misnomer in, in the orthopedic world, at least as far as pain management is concerned. Um, there is real regenerative medicine going on really on the, the bench lab you know, research type of world um, where people are, are working with uh, embryonic stem cells to try to grow organs and things along those lines. But that's still very, very much so on in the research world. Yeah. The way I see the work that you're doing now is kind of the way that people used to think of chiropractic when it first came out. They were like, this is bogus. What is chiro? If you look at like the history of chiro uh, being a chiropractor, there was so much uh, at one point in time, insurance didn't cover it. Sure. And then obviously more research came out there. And now like insurance knows that if you want to save somebody from like spinal surgery years later on, if they get into a car accident, one of the best things you could do is send them to chiropractic and other physical rehabilitation. But part of the work, and I alluded, this, I alluded to this earlier in the question I was asking. So a stat here that we have for my team. So according to the CDC in a 2016 survey, an estimated 50 million Americans suffer from chronic pain and 19.6 million Americans had a high impact chronic pain, meaning that the impact, meaning that the pain was limited to at least uh, limited one major life activity. So give us the landscape of pain today in not just America, but around the world. So pain is an interesting thing. You know, looking at those numbers, right, you, you said that the, the statistics are staggering, right? The, the amount of people that are in pain is tremendous. 
Um, some would argue that that chronic pain is in itself an epidemic, right? Um, but really, if you look at it, it's there's there's multiple epidemics in one. Gallup, the poll company, uh, basically put out a report just in April of this year, uh, looking at the the survey that they did in 2018 and comparing that to the survey they did in 2017. Worldwide, they surveyed people and said yesterday, how do you feel in terms of your anxiety? How do you feel in terms of your uh, worry? How do you feel in terms of your uh, anger? And how do you feel in terms of your pain? Um, and it was staggering that um, one third of pay- people across the world uh, were saying that they were in pain. But in the US, over 50% of people or around 50% of people were saying that they were stressed or that they were anxious or that they were worried. And, and I think that that goes hand in hand. Uh, we've seen in the literature that that stress and anxiety goes hand in hand with pain. Um, and that's kind of a vicious cycle that that is pervading society at this point. Um, but there's more to pain, right? The, the opioid epidemic is another epidemic that's involved. Um, and I think that's gained a lot of media attention. We can certainly talk about that. Um, but the, another epidemic that's really overlooked is the mismanagement of pain. Um, and I think that the way traditional medicine is set up right now is people go through an algorithmic approach to pain and really aren't getting to the root of the issue in terms of what's causing the pain. Rather, people ended up just treating the pain itself. So um, that's really the kind of broad landscape of what, what pain management is like right now. Getting to the root of the pain, that's really the work that you do. So tell us about your background before we jump into some of these treatments and therapies that we want to talk about that are innovative, emerging, and that are resources out there that people could you know seek out in their own area. I want to set a little bit of your background. First, I want to start off with you are a doctor of osteopathic medicine. Yeah. A lot of people are confused. My brother-in-law is a DO, sure. right? Explain osteopathic medicine and um, let's start from there. Sure. Uh, so a, a DO is one of the two physicians um, in the US. Uh, there are MDs and there's DOs. Uh, and DO, a doctor of osteopathic medicine, goes through the same four years of medical school education as an MD. Uh, but in addition, uh, there's two major factors that, that set, us up, uh, set us apart. Um, number one is uh, in theory. Uh, in theory, we really have these four tenets that look at the body as a whole, uh, look at um, you know, the body's ability to heal itself, and look at how that is, a proper treatment should really take all of that into account. Um, and of course, there are MDs that look holistically at patients as well. But this is really um, at the base of what it is to be an osteopath. It was part of your training versus if you're an MD like Dr. Hyman or somebody else, you kind of had to seek it out and learn it separately from your medical training. Absolutely. And, and, and don't get me wrong, there's actually a lot of MDs that I consider more osteopathic than DOs and, and vice versa, right? Sure. Um, but I think that that is an innate part of what we do in our training. Um, the other big difference is we learned some osteopathic manipulation. Uh, so it's similar to chiropractic, similar to some physical therapy modalities, um, and really getting our hands on patients, both in diagnosis and in treatment. Um, so that's really what sets DOs apart from MDs. As far as postgraduate education is concerned, both MDs and DOs have to do residency training, um, and some opt to do things like fellowship training uh, in various subspecialties. And all of that is really combined at this juncture. Take us on the journey of what brought you into the space of really specializing in pain. Yeah, so it's it's actually, you want the long story or the short story? <laughs> so, Start off with the short, yeah. and then I'll... I'll <laughs> I'll uh, lead you on to the long. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, so in, in med school, I was actually originally interested in psychiatry. 
um, I was really interested in the mind and and particularly how the mind affects the body. Um, but when I got to med school and I learned about osteopathic manipulative medicine, I got really interested in the musculoskeletal system and and the body itself. So then I was kind of torn between you know the mind and the body. That's when I learned about my specialty of physical medicine and rehabilitation. Uh, that is a specialty that is focused on function. Um, that is a specialty that's pretty broad, treating everyone from stroke to spinal cord injury to amputees to patients after orthopedic surgeries um, to sports medicine and to finally pain medicine. Um, and, and that field really attracted me because it combined the psychology of things. It combined the physical treatment. Um, and it really had a great view of pain, which was that that pain happens, injuries happen, uh, surgeries happen, but let's talk about function. Let's talk about getting people moving better, um, living their lives the way that they want to. And that really attracted me to that field. Since then, I did a fellowship in sports medicine and interventional pain management. Um, but ultimately, in, in every step of the way, I also had exposure to this, this new emerging field of, of regenerative medicine which ultimately combined all of the things that were going on in my trainings until that point. What was part of the process of you opening up and kind of looking, you know, being a, a physician, I'm sure you didn't really get taught anything about like stem cell therapy in school, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we, we get taught about stem cells, but, sure. but it's conceptual, theoretical. Exactly. Yeah. And what, when you talk about stem cells, right, we talk about more often than not, people are thinking about embryonic stem cells, right? When, when you're first when immaculate conception and you're made into a baby, right? Your embryo, those cells turn into everything. So everybody is, is uh, hooked on the, the words stem cell. Um, and that's really where my, my knowledge came about, right? That's what we learned about in med school. Uh, we didn't really learn about the emerging sciences that are using various cells from the body to, to promote healing and function. And also the treatment of how to actually practically use them for patients and implement them in an office type setting and, and to do all that. So Absolutely. when you started looking at regenerative medicine, what were some of the experiences that you were having, whether with patients or just your own curiosity that had you seek out other solutions beyond what you were taught about uh, in med school? So to, to answer that question, we've got to look back at, at traditional pain management. You know, um, the way we were taught in medical school and in my residency training is that oftentimes when it comes to dealing with pain, we're, we're dealing with the symptom. We're not dealing with the cause, right? So we're dealing with the pain with things like medications, with dealing with the pain with things like cortisone injections. Um, and ultimately, we're dealing with pain with things like surgery. Um, but, you know, that wasn't dealing with the root cause of the issue. You know, if somebody had an injury... Um, then more often than not, we were dealing with the after effects rather than, than what caused it. So um, physical medicine and rehabilitation really focused on dealing with the underlying issue to a certain extent um, because we did a lot of things like sending patients to physical therapy and getting people moving properly. But when tissues weren't healing properly, we were kind of relegated to saying, hey, surgery is the next line, right? So I thought that there's such a gap in between these things. And, and when I heard about people doing regenerative medicine, that, that really fascinated me. Now, that's evolved over the years. Um, we used to think that we inject these stem cells or various other things, and we're, 
we're regrowing joints. You know, we're, we're reversing the arthritis that's there or, or regrowing tissues that are damaged. Uh, but we realize now that that's, that's actually not the case. And so what is the case? The interesting thing is with, with stem cells, um, the stem cells actually work to signal the environment around the area. Uh, so it's interesting, the, the founder of the word mesenchymal stem cells. Mesenchymal stem cells refers to the, the type of stem cells that we're, we're using from the bone marrow or, or various other tissues. Um, and that's the line of stem cells that are more differentiated down the route of bone, tendon, muscle, et cetera, orthopedic type tissues. Um, if you think of embryonic stem cells as being able to turn into anything, Mesenchymal stem cells are more differentiated, now being able to turn into more specific things. So the founder of that, uh, this, this brilliant physician by the name of Dr. Arnie Kaplan, um, named it mesenchymal stem cells um, because those are the cells that in the lab setting we were able to actually differentiate into bone, muscle, tendon, etc. But found out that in the body, they're actually not differentiating they're signaling the local environment. They're signaling the local stem cells to tell them, hey, wake up, do your job when there's been an injury for a long time or when there's been pain for a long time. Um, this, is, this is so profound that over the past few years, Dr. Kaplan has actually been recommending that instead of calling it mesenchymal stem cells, to call them medicinal signaling cells. So not even calling them stem cells because they're not changing into these various structures right? But they're actually changing the environment, talking to the area that's in pain. So this is how our, this is how the industry's understanding of stem cells has changed. Absolutely. And it's more that these stem cells that are injected are getting these local parts to, as like a hype man or yeah. a hype woman, are the cheerleader to say, here's what we need to do. And the body sometimes does that on its own. Absolutely. It's just that in the case of regenerative medicine, in the case of specifically stem cells, you're just encouraging the process to happen. That's right. So, you know, oftentimes if you have an injury, if you bump your arm or get a cut, right, the local environment reacts. The, the local stem cells that live in that area are attracted to that region and start the healing process. Um, you know, the local environment actually goes into inflammation first. People demonize the word inflammation, but... But it's actually a good thing. It's a good thing initially. Initially, um, it should come and then it should go as a part of the healing process. Um, the, the way I describe inflammation is, is that it's like the demolition day of a home reconstruction, right? You know, if you want to get a new kitchen cabinet in there, you got to get rid of the old kitchen cabinet first in order to lay down the new whatever. I, you know, I'm not a building blocks, no, yeah. whatever, <laughs> tile, cabinets. Exactly. Um, but when people are stuck, in inflammation. So if people have either their nutrition or their body is predisposed to inflammation, or if their biomechanics are off, they're walking funny, so therefore they keep on irritating a joint. Or if the joint has arthritis and it's degenerated, so the local stem cells in the area aren't able to get the body, get that that joint out of that inflammation, then you get stuck in that inflammatory a position. Chronic inflammation. Absolutely. Whether it's whole body or localized, depending on what the person's dealing with. Absolutely. And, and the long-term implications of that. And, and the long-term implications, going back to my analogy, you're no longer just taking off the old kitchen cabinets. Now you're taking off the drywall, right? You're, you're getting more damage into an area when you're stuck in that position. Since we're on the topic of stem cells, I want to stay there for a second. Um, 
give us a little bit of the landscape. I mean, I think feel like more and more people are hearing about stem cells, but let's turn it into something practical for those that are listening. What are typically uh, some of the things that people come in and see you for? Because it's not just that you're a stem cell doctor. You work with a lot of different components on pain management. That's your goal is to help people get to the root cause and hopefully address their pain. Sometimes you do that with anti-inflammatory diet and supplements. In fact, in addition to everything you do, you will recommend diet, lifestyle, other factors, stretching, physical therapy, et cetera. So people come to you for a whole host of issues, but what are the things that people come to you for when stem cell now becomes a possibility as one of the approaches in regenerative medicine to use in your toolbox? So that's a great question. And people come to me with all sorts of different orthopedic pain conditions, um, whether it's a, an ACL tear in their knee or a rotator cuff issue or, or back pain going on for years. You know, it, 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 we treat the whole gamut. Um, but ultimately, when patients come to me, they've heard of stem cells. And unfortunately, the way that the, the current dynamic is in the industry is that the word stem cells being thrown around left and right. Um, there are people truly capitalizing on on the sexiness of the word stem cell, of of the appeal of being able to regrow or regenerate, um, and there there's people that are taking advantage of patients. Unfortunately, um, there's a lot of patients that are in pain um, or have various other conditions that are that are desperate. You know, they they want to be healed, they want to be out of pain, and ultimately there are folks that are preying on that desperation. Anytime an emerging industry grows, whether it's cannabis, CBD, other stuff, there's always people that flock there who may not understand the full spectrum or really have gone through the training. And so they use marketing to get people's attention. That's absolutely right. And for better or for worse, right? You know, the the marketing that they do is ultimately bringing eyes and attention to the field as a whole and, and making people realize that it's an opportunity. On the other hand, the marketing is taking patients away from legitimate treatments and going towards things that are false hopes, false beliefs. Right. right? And that's why education is so important. And I appreciate you coming on the podcast to take us down that journey. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what was interesting is that people are using the word stem cell and saying that they can do things with them that is not shown in the research, that is not shown in the literature. Um, and there's a whole industry that has grown out of this at this juncture. And that's really what we're trying to educate the public about uh, and saying that, you know what, there are legitimate treatments that are available, um, but they're vastly different than what people are, are claiming. And let's let's make it super practical. What are some injuries or things that people go through in life or whether you want to take particular parts of the body like the spine or other areas? And when is stem cells potentially one of the modalities to tap into and, and when is it not? For example, I came to you because uh, a family member of mine was uh, going through cancer uh, the second time around. She had breast cancer uh, and then the cancer, after being cancer-free for a long time, it, uh, through actually a chiropractic appointment, found out that she had um, some growth on her spine. And that was putting her in incredible pain because the thought was that the tumors on the spine uh, and the growth on the spine was putting pressure on a nerve and that nerve was creating just debilitating, you know, level 10 out of 10 pain. And she was in the hospital for quite some time. So I came to you and I said, not understanding all the possibilities, I said, is my aunt a candidate for that? And you said, hey, listen, 
stem cells is not anything really nerve related, right? Can you yeah. expand on that? Yeah. So what's interesting is that we, we can treat nerves, but we can't treat the cancer. Right. Um, and, that's, and that's what it comes down to is whether we're treating the pain or we're treating the, the, the cause of the pain. Right? And in this case, it was the tumor that was causing the pressure on the nerve. Nothing was wrong with the nerve. It Absolutely. just was, it was in a, a rock in a hard place. Absolutely. Right? So theoretically, we can try to calm down the irritation to the nerve. But since you know, the nerve was continuously being irritated by the tumor, there was nothing that we could do about that. And more importantly, we don't know how treatments using biologics, such as stem cells or other things from your blood growth factors, et cetera, how that may or may not negatively or positively affect the tumor. Right. Um, you Does know, it increase the growth? Does it not? There's not enough research yet. Especially when something is active and going on. Um, we, we have some data showing the people that are in remission after, sur after a tumor, uh, whether they've had it surgically removed or chemotherapy radiation, um, then it is theoretically safe to do these biologic treatments after they are in remission. Um, and, and certainly we have enough data saying that these treatments that we do aren't going to be causing new cancer, but we don't know how it affects cancer that is ongoing currently. Um, so that's certainly something that that is is uh, something we want to tread carefully with, and and quite frankly avoid until we know that things like that would be safe. So that was an example of something that a good example of like, okay, stem cells can't be used in this case. Correct. What are examples of what stem cells can be used for? Absolutely. Um, so as far as things that that stem cells work for, well, first of all, let me back away from using the word stem cells. Right. I just talked about how they're called medicinal signaling <laughs> cells. Uh, no, um, I, I like to use the word orthobiologics um, because that refers to uh, a kind of a, a spectrum of things. It includes stem cells. Um, it includes growth factors from the blood called PRP and, and things that are similar to that um, and, and various other things that could help with orthopedic conditions. So the typical patients that I see, arthritis, uh, whether it's knee arthritis, arthritis in the back, arthritis in the shoulder, neck, all these various areas, um, and then uh, some more acute injuries, things like ACL tears, things like rotator cuff tears, things like disc bulges causing nerve irritation in the low back or the neck. Um, those are the type of things that we are able to treat. I don't use stem cells for all these patients um, because sometimes it's not necessary to use stem cells. Sometimes we can get away with using the growth factors from the blood, the PRP. Which is what you did for my friend Chris in that instance of his back injury that happened from surfing and hitting a rock. That's right. He didn't need stem cells. That's right. Um, because, you know, ju just because we have a tool doesn't mean we need to use it, right? Uh, we need to look at and stratify what type of patients require what type of orthobiologics. And, and he did really, really well without the use of stem cells. And so I know I keep on asking some version of this question, but like, when do you, how do you choose? I mean, there's so many factors that yeah. go into chewing that, choosing the right toolbox for, for people that are out there that are dealing with pain and are thinking about options that are out there and what questions to ask. When would somebody maybe use PRP, plate-rich plasma? When right. would they use stem cells? When would they be looking at other stuff? Of course, they have to go see a physician. They have to work with a physician. They have to get properly diagnosed, but just big picture buckets Sure. I think the, the big picture question that you're, you're asking is, is when can this be an option for me? Right. Um, whether it's stem cells or PRP or, or whatever. Um, ultimately, when a patient has a, an injury or, uh, or pain that is long lasting, um, more often than not in traditional medicine, they've gone through pain medications, they've gone through maybe steroid injections, things along those lines, and they're facing things like surgery. Right? They're facing things like a knee replacement or a spine surgery or something along those lines. 
unless there are certain circumstances, surgery is absolutely necessary. Um, but when they're in that gray zone, that's where the orthobiologics come into to view. So if you have knee arthritis and you've been told, you know what, um, we can keep on doing cortisone injections um, or you can have a knee replacement. That's a circumstance where we may want to see a physician that is specializing in orthobiologics to say, hey, you know what, what options do I have available to me? Um, what's interesting, though, is that the the field is is expanding. Um, ACL tears, for example. Um, ACL is a ligament in the knee. It's a pretty famous ligament. It's the one that football players keep on tearing, right? And uh, the traditionally, the treatment for an ACL tear, especially if you're an athlete or an active person, especially if you're younger, is an ACL repair surgery. Um, but the recovery from an ACL repair surgery takes a year or longer. There's a, a paper that shows that you can't return to your full sport until even two years, potentially, uh, your full level of activity that you were at before. Um, and ACL surgery sets you up for arthritis, sets you up for, believe it or not, an ACL tear in the other knee. You know, all these kind of things that happen with surgery. Um, we found now that for partial thickness ACL tears, and even some full thickness ACL tears, we're actually able to heal the tendon or you heal the ligament with using your own growth factors from your blood and your own stem cells from your bone marrow. Pretty remarkable stuff. We've actually had some publications on that front as well. Um, so, you know, if, if you have an injury that you're suspicious that, you know, you're, you're being thrown pain medications at or you're throwing cortisone injections and you don't want to go down the route of something that might actually be negatively affecting you, certainly if you're facing surgery, those are the times that you can step back and say, hey, are orthobiologics a potential option for me? Because in the case of like something like knee surgery, which I don't know what the stats are in terms of how many of them are done every year, or the percentage of often adults, you know, sometimes kids, but often adults if it's not an injury, uh, it's not like getting a knee surgery, you go and get a surgery and then you're back to normal, right? Yeah. So the knee surgery is a funny thing. Um, you have your two general categories. You have your arthroscopic surgery, uh, which is using scopes to go inside and, and clean out the knee. Um, and then you have your knee replacement for when, for when things get really serious, when the arthritis is very, very bad. Um, and they're actually removing the bone of the knee and replacing it with hardware so that the knee is replaced or, or new, so to speak. Um, both of those are very necessary in very specific situations, but both of those statistically are, are ridiculous how much these are being done. And sometimes for, for, uh, ab for reasons that aren't really necessary. Um, the scope, the arthroscopic surgery is done for more milder conditions like meniscus tears. Meniscus is the shock absorber in the knee. Um, and things along those lines, milder arthritis cases, uh, arthroscopic surgery is done for that. Um, but the truth is that for degenerative conditions, arthroscopic surgery has been shown in research to have no better outcomes than fake surgery when they just poke holes in the knee and wash out the, the inflammation inside the knee joint. Yeah, without the actually, placebo effect of surgery. Exactly, exactly. Well, it, it may be placebo, or, or in that situation, it may be just that you wash out the inflammation so then you feel better, mm -hmm. right? Um, the, the fake surgery involves just washing out the joint with saline okay. water. Got it. Um, and if you wash out the knee joint, then okay, you feel better. But removing that torn meniscus or removing some cartilage that's frayed um, ends up removing some of the structures of the joint. 
and actually predisposing to worsening arthritis down the road. So in those circumstances, what if there's an alternative? What if we can change the negative environment of the joint and actually removing structural tissues, actually strengthening the structural tissues with some biologics coming from your own body? So that's, that's really where we, we fit in the, in the spectrum. Certainly, knee replacement surgery is the, the ultimate cure, so to speak. Um, but for replacement surgeries, up to 40% of people still continue to have pain afterwards. Oh, yeah, a lot of people. And that can lead to, uh, you know, just being a life dependency on, on uh, certain pain management drugs, which have their own implications, at least in the er- you know, early research being done in this area, on potentially suppressing the function of like mitochondria in the body, having other side effects inside the system, in addition to the body slowly adjusting. Because pain... I've heard it. I just went to the annual functional medicine conference and I interviewed a, interviewed a bunch of individuals um, on pain, addiction, and you're part of this whole series that we're doing. And they were saying, functional medicine doctor was saying that uh, David Haas, I believe, he was saying, you know, pain is like a smoke detector. It's trying to tell you that something is going on. So if you're still left with pain that's there, your body's like, something is not working. Something is going on because if you don't address it, that could lead to something much much more of a bigger issue later on. And when it comes to anybody that's had a family member or anybody themselves that's been on long-term pain medication knows that your body will adjust and you need often more and more medication to manage the same injury that was there. I think that's a great analogy and it's a great point, right? Um, opioids change what pain is. So what do I mean by that? Um, there's there's two broad categories of pain that we can talk about. There's nociceptive pain, which is when you have an injury or when you're walking funny and you twist your knee or whatever it may be, you have a disc bulge that irritates a nerve. That's nociceptive pain, meaning the, the pain fibers, the neurons that are there are like, crap, there's an injury, pain, right? Um, that, when it becomes chronic, Um, when that's been going on for a long time, then it's no longer that there's literally damage that's there. It's that the signals get screwed up. Your nervous system adapts in a maladaptive way. So, and opioids actually make that worse. Opioids can make your nervous system more hypersensitive to pain. So the way that I describe it is that your, your, your body is like a bank, right? And that initial injury that you had, your bank got robbed. Okay, so the bank owner is like, hey, we, we got to up the security system. But then, you know, you don't treat the, the root source of the pain properly. You don't do the physical therapy or you don't treat the body's inflammation or you don't treat the biologics of the joint or whatever it may be. So then you get injured again. Bank gets robbed again. Right. Bank owners like, hey, we, we got to up the security system again. And then again. Right, we got to up the security system, and again, opioids changes the way the security system works. So pretty soon, a damn pigeon is walking past the bank, and the alarm system goes off, and they shoot like a nuclear bomb at it. Right, exactly. Reaction. Exactly. The pigeon ain't robbing the bank, but the nervous system is so hypersensitive at this point that even small actions are 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 not saying, "Hey, you know what? I feel something there." That the nervous system is now saying, "Damage." Instead of saying that, you know what, I just bumped my elbow, 
you know so that's that's kind of the way the the pain uh cascade works and and that's how opioids really screw the pooch there you know that that really changes the way the nervous system works and it's no longer nociceptive pain at this point and now it's more a nerve system neurologic type of of pain that's occurring super fascinating and obviously this is a very timely topic because of all the lawsuits that are going on and in that process, the revealing we, uh, depending on when this interview airs, we just had an interview with Dr. John Kelly, who was talking about, it was amazing how much the medical community was just duped because the studies that were showing either the lack of addiction when it came to opioids or the studies that were showing, um, you know, they're primarily in the space of addiction, actually, it was th- those studies himself didn't have the real efficacy that was needed to pass the test and just because of the marketing buzz and doctors prescribing and patients requesting you ended up having this oversupply of opioids inside of the system without really the full proof that was needed to show the implications that it was going to have yeah i think the the whole opioid crisis is so multifactorial and that is a huge huge part of it right not having the appropriate data to say that something is safe but then throwing at you know, throwing at people that are are suffering in pain to try to alleviate that pain with a with a medication. I mean, that's that's the way America is, right? We want a quick fix. We want to deal with the pain and deal with it now. And the opioid industry is it grew out of that, right? The demand for pain management uh, became a huge source of of income for pharmaceutical companies. Um, but it's interesting. That's not that's not the only factor, though. Um, physicians have to deal with pain. Um, a, a few years back, pain became one of the vital signs, right? You think of blood pressure, you think of pulse, and then pain became one of the vital signs. So now, um, if you're a physician and you're trying to get imber- reimbursed for uh, an office visit, if you don't check off the box that you've discussed pain with a patient, then you're not going to get reimbursed the way that you should be, right? And reimbursements go down. So a physician is seeing 30 patients in a day. And now anybody that says, oh, yeah, I have pain, what's the way to deal with that in a time-efficient manner? We'll throw some medications at them. Right. It's just a system that, unfortunately, that we're in. And really a larger message and theme that we have to become the CEO of our health. We have to become the CEO of our health. And we have to uh, listen to podcasts, read books, step into it. You may not be into pain. You may not be in pain today. But at some point in time, everybody's going to go through some pain in their life absolutely, and understanding the approaches that are out there and being an advocate for yourself, right? Absolutely. Being an advocate for yourself. And asking why, right? Because if you, if you go to the physician, you go to a traditional doc that says, okay, I'm going to give you this prescription for painkiller. Why? Right. Just taking that minute or, or, and if that physician doesn't have the time to, to address it, then taking a step back and, and, and looking at it yourself and saying, all right, maybe I need to go to somebody else. Right. right. Something that can educate you along the way. I want to come back to uh, the tools in the regenerative toolbox using another analogy. Let's talk about um, spine and back surgery and just, you know, people in the state, in this day and age that we live in, there's a lot of back issues. There's a lot of pain that starts in, in the back. In, in fact, what would you say would be the biggest frequency of the number one thing that you see people for across the spectrum? Is it more knee? Is it back? Is it joints? Is it? I would say backs and knees. By backs far. and knees. Yeah. So back is a big one. And let's talk about traditionally, 
when pain is building up and somebody's at a place where they're a candidate for some version of back spinal surgery, whatever the definition is, sure. um, when a doctor is making that referral or that decision, uh, what are they thinking about that at that time? Is it that this patient's pain has just gotten so bad that like, well, actually, even let me start on the basics. What even happens during a back surgery and a spinal surgery, right? I realize like, I don't actually even know what actually goes on during that process. So back surgery, spine surgery in general is, is a wide, wide spectrum of things. Um, uh, to, to really go in depth on that, we'd have to go into the in depth about the anatomy of the spine and all the different <laughs> things that can cause pain, right? Um, and which would be a talk in itself. Um, but but the truth is the back surgery could be what we call minimally invasive, meaning um, just trying to uh, go and, and interfere with as little as possible um, to try to address the thing that is causing the, the pain, the weakness, the numbness, the tingling. The specific, it could be a specific disc. Correct. It could be um, a specific area that is identified as being the source of the pain. Correct. Um, and then it could be as expansive, surgery could be as expansive as doing a fusion surgery uh, when hardware is used. Uh, well, first, pieces of bone or pieces of disc are removed to to get rid of the, the thing that's causing the pain. And because of so much removal of tissue, there's instability there. So hardware has to be used to fuse two segments or three segments of spine together. Um, and that is the most aggressive type of form of spine surgery that is there. Um, most ethical spine surgeons, and, and there's certainly great spine surgeons that are out there that fall into this camp, recommend surgery as an absolute last resort. Because um, it's so invasive, the recovery time can be quite long. And even if it's successful, there's potential side effects. Right. When there's this old kind of joke that, you know, doc, I'm still in pain after my surgery, but the surgery was successful. Right. For all intents and purposes, the surgery went beautifully. The fusion took place, but the patient may still be in pain because there's a lot of other things that are a lot of other factors that are involved. So, for example, if you fuse two segments together in a, in a fusion surgery, there's this whole syndrome called adjacent segment disease. You know, if something has a name, that it happens pretty frequently, right? So instead of the, there being movement at those levels, those levels are now fused. So the levels above and below now have to make up for that movement. So further degeneration, further issues happen above and below then. And then surgery begets surgery then at this point. So somebody like yourself who's helping a patient, patient comes in, I have back pain, right? When you're looking at your tools of after you get a proper diagnosis and you understand what's going on with them and their medical history, when you're looking at the tools in the toolbox of regenerative medicine, um, what are some of the questions you're thinking about and possible solutions based on what's happening with them? When, when I typically see a patient with back pain, more often than not, they've, they've been through the ringer. They've had various right. treatments before they get to me. You're usually not the first person that people come to. You're like the fifth or sixth and they've right. had this thing for a while. Yeah, and, and people are either trying to avoid too many cortisone injections or avoid surgery. Yeah, and just, just quickly, just just on that, cortisone injections, right? Yeah. So just just explain that. Obviously, anybody who's dealt with back pain knows about it and has probably had it. Yeah. But for those that are listening uh, who could have back pain one day, uh, and my hope is that they don't, knock on wood over here, um, what is a cortisone, which is one of the common tools that you know uh, practitioners would use to sort of mask the pain. Cortisone is a very, very 
common tool and not just for back pain, but even things like knee pain, knee arthritis, et cetera. Um, cortisone is corticosteroid. It's a steroid uh, that actually works by calming down inflammation in a region. Yeah, steroid is going to be a suppressant of, of something. Correct. And, and basically, it works at a cellular level to, to decrease inflammation. That's really the main thing that it's doing. There's, Through brute force. Essentially, essentially. Through brute force. Um, what's interesting about it is that it's short term. It, it only lasts for a short period of time, theoretically. Um, and there's some folks that could have a cortisone injection and have it last for a long period of time. But arguably, that's because the cortisone has calmed down the inflammation. And in either the way that you've changed the way you move, you've done physical therapy or whatnot, you're now able to stop the thing that was causing the pain in the first place. But cortisone only lasts for a period of time. So if you don't address that underlying issue, then you're going to have to repeatedly get cortisone injections. That's what most people do. They have regular appointments with their doctor where they get cortisone Every shots and they have to come in. And, and we now know that things like knees... Um, if you do repeated cortisone injections, there's been research published that says that those repeated cortisone injections will actually make the arthritis worse. Mm. And there's a lot, even putting that aside, there's a lot of side effects, right? There, cortisone can actually change your hormones. I've seen patients that had lost their period, gained their period back or vice versa, right? I've seen patients with their diabetes skyrocket because of a single cortisone injection. Wow. I've seen little old ladies get cortisone repeatedly and get fractures in their spine because they have osteoporosis afterwards. So it's it's a very has very real effects, but people are using it like it's candy, you know. Um, and and sometimes it's a very reasonable treatment to do. Uh, there are very specific circumstances where the cortisone injection is not the end of the world, but it's repeating those and, and getting in that pattern that really has detrimental so Whether effects. or not it's a long-term solution. Correct. That's going to be there. Correct. And in the end, the only solution that really people are doing instead of thinking about the body holistically. Exactly. And, and that's the problem, right? That's dealing with the pain. That's not dealing with the cause of the pain. So when I see a patient come to me with back pain, we're circling back to your question, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I ask them, how's your nutrition? I ask them, what kind of diet are you taking? What, what supplements are you on? I ask them, have you had physical therapy? And a lot of times they'll say, yeah, but they might've had physical therapy that was really just massage and hey, here's a handout and do these exercises. But have you really done physical therapy where, where somebody works with you to make sure you're doing the exercise properly, make sure you're moving your body properly? Those are the things that I actually use more commonly than anything. The stem cells, the orthobiologics that I use in my treatments really are just a catalyst. They're facilitating the body to heal, but it's how you move. It's what you put in your body that's really the effect that's taking place. And it's together when they're the sweet spot if a patient needs the whole thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, at, ahead, a, please. at a patient, a, a pitcher, um, who had a shoulder injury. Uh, he had previously had shoulder surgery, um, but he still had lingering pain afterwards, right? He wasn't able to pitch afterwards because of that. He came to me for a stem cell treatment, but I looked at him, I talked to him, and I talked to him about his nutrition. And, you know, he had gained weight because he was depressed about the pain and not being able to play baseball, et cetera. Um, so I talked to him in depth about that. He eventually did a stem cell treatment for, with me. Um, but in the interim, he lost 30 pounds, his pain had actually improved. He was eating healthy. He was doing well overall. His mood had changed. All of that before I even did the stem cell treatment. 
afterwards, he did fantastic. His his shoulder still was post-surgery. I, I didn't give him a brand new shoulder again, but I improved the strength in his shoulder with, his, with the stem cell treatment. But ultimately, his long-term improvement all came from him, right? Came from his nutrition, came from the way that he was moving again. Because all these factors, we have other episodes on this. We know that our diet, for instance, that a lot of inflammation sort of starts in the gut, a lot of chronic inflammation. Yeah. In functional medicine, doctors are taught that, you know, health and disease kind of starts in the gut. Absolutely. And uh, especially if people are dealing with uh, intestinal permeability and not digesting well and other factors. Um, so that's the dietary component. You, you talked about this just briefly. People have heard this whole uh, old adage that sometimes their practitioner this happens with stem cells too. And we're going to talk about the research and the landscape and maybe why more doctors are not prescribing options or giving patients education about the solutions. But especially when it comes to supplements, we've heard the old adage of uh, supplements are expensive urine. And I would say that most of the supplements on the market are pretty crap and they're made in other countries, not at the highest standards and supplements are not FDA regulated. But then there's this classification of sort of what I call uh, nutraceuticals that are higher end supplements that often come as a recommendation of practitioner, trusted companies that are out there. What are some of the key ones that you'll use in your practice as part of helping people? Not alone. It's always within combination of diet and mobility and physical therapy and other aspects. But what are some of your go-to that you recommend out there when it comes to pain management and more specifically the root causes of what could be contributing to the pain? So one thing, uh, when it comes to supplements, I, I try to stratify if I have a patient that has more of an arthritic degenerative condition um, or somebody that has more of a nerve-related condition, um, whether that's a pinched nerve or whether that's kind of that, that opioid-induced hypersensitivity of the nervous system, right? Um, and based off of that, I, I lead people towards a few different supplements. Now, I am by no means an expert at supplements or in functional medicine as a whole, so I do uh, refer patients to functional medicine docs all the time. Um, that being said, there's a few that I like. Um, for knee arthritis, for example, um, the three that I would like are fish oils or omega-3 fatty acids, um, turmeric, and glucosamine slash chondroitin. Um, these three, the literature is a little mixed in terms of the benefit of them, but I think you alluded to that in the fact that the, the supplement industry itself is very, very mixed. So having good quality supplements is very difficult. Um, but uh, those three tend to have better effects for more inflammatory joint conditions. Um, once we start wading into the nerve type of regions, um, your B vitamins, your B6, B12, um, potentially have some effect on nerves. Um, and then turmeric was interesting. There's some, uh, there's a very limited uh, animal study that suggests that um, not just the curcumin or anti-inflammatory component of turmeric, uh, but the alpha tumorones, another component of whole turmeric, may actually have benefit for nerve stem cell health. Um, so I have had some patients that have been on some whole turmeric supplements when they have neurogenic or nerve-related pain and, and have had uh, some significant benefit. So um, those are kind of the ones that I'll send patients to as, as an initial kind of purvey into um, supplements. Um, but ultimately, when it comes down to the nitty-gritty, I'm sending my patients out to functional medicine docs. What's the data and the literature and the research out there in the space of uh, stem cells? and the use of stem cells and PRP. Let's just focus on those two for right now. Sure. 
uh, what's the landscape of the literature and the data on it um, in terms of what's available? Are this is is this a wild wild west and people are just trying it without any researcher literature, or do we have promising things with the call for more research and literature? Give us the landscape on what we know out there when it comes to these uh, modalities. So there there's actually a, a pretty decent amount of research overall when it comes to orthobiologics as a whole. Um, but it is partially the wild, wild west out there because, like I said, there there's a lot of folks that are uh, using the word stem cells and, and injecting God knows what into people making these false claims. Um, but that being said, um, there is growing research in both stem cells and PRP. Uh, PRP actually has more research by and large. Um, and there's a few indications that really are robust at this juncture. Um, so tennis elbow or what's called lateral epicondylosis. Um, knee arthritis uh, and, and tendon t- tendinopathy or irritation to the tendons of, across the buttock um, on the outside of the hip. Um, those three areas have some pretty robust research at this juncture in support of PRP. Um, now, the bigger question is what is PRP and, and what does it do, right? Uh, PRP stands for platelet-rich plasma. Um, platelets, when you cut yourself, the platelets are the thing that stops the bleeding. Those platelets then release growth factors from within, and those growth factors do various things. There are some growth factors that are pro-inflammatory, causing inflammation. There are some growth factors that decrease inflammation. There are some growth factors that actually call the local stem cells to the area to start healing in that region. Um, And that's how PRP works. Uh, So we're able to concentrate the blood, take that blood, make it a very, very high concentration, and use that into various joints. The, the patient's own blood. Patient's own blood. And just take us from like step number one, like how are you take, is this blood just, just through a regular IV in the arm? Yeah. You're taking it out. And then what's the next step that you do with that, that blood to have it turn into this PRP that's injected back in? So we do a normal blood draw um, as if you're, you know, donating blood or whatnot. Um, it's, it's more than, uh, so we have a flexible lab platform where we're able to create higher concentrations of PRP. Um, most people that are doing PRP use kits um, in order to make various different concentrations. Um, ultimately, though, you take the blood and you process it in a centrifuge-like device where it spins down the blood and we can get different layers from it. Um, from that blood, we're able to get a layer called the platelets, and, and that's how we create the platelet-rich plasma. Um, there's, there's actually a layer that's discarded called the platelet-poor plasma. Most people discard that, but there's actually some interesting research that suggests that that layer uh, could be beneficial for some specific circumstances. So there's more research that is growing in the field of using your own blood platelets in various ways. So in the case of our buddy, our mutual friend, Chris, when he came in and you did a blood draw for him and you put him as a candidate for platelet-rich plasma, he had a spine uh, issue, yeah. uh, pain that was coming from this injury. Uh, then what's the next step after, after that? So after the blood is processed, I, uh, in his circumstance, I made a few different varieties of PRP uh, to treat the different components of what's going on in his spine. Most people that are uh, doing treatments of these areas try to find what's, what's the pain generator, what's the thing that is causing the pain. But oftentimes in any body part, but especially the spine, there may be a specific nerve or disc that is irritated or injured 
but the ligaments, which are the duct tape that connect bone to bone, the joints in the area, the muscles in the area, all of those things are contributing to the function of that region. And it's called the functional spinal unit. So I used various different types of PRP um, to actually address all of those different components of that spine. And, and that's how we get better results overall. So this isn't just like a single epidural steroid injection. Um, this is multiple injections in that region to really provide strength to the area, to take pressure off of the disc, to take pressure off of the nerves, and to get the nerves functioning properly. And for a lot of people, since we're on the topic of PRP, uh, everybody's different, but uh, what are some of the things you're looking out for to see if the patient's heading in the right direction, if this thing is working? So a great question is, is what's the time frame after this and, and how do we know if the patient is doing better? There's some folks that I see that, that had PRP injections or they claim that, you know what, they immediately had benefit the next day. Um, and, and the truth is they may have. Um, they may have uh, had benefit because of this wonderful thing called the placebo effect. Um, but the truth is the, the way the platelets work is, is they're working on a biological level, so it takes time to take effect. Um, so there's some interesting studies looking at PRP versus cortisone for various areas, like the tennis elbow, for example. Um, and it showed that the cortisone had uh, better or similar results in the short term. But long term, the PRP has better outcomes. And that's because it takes time for that to ramp up. So when I see a patient and I'm treating them with PRP or really any biologic, I explain that there, there may actually be increased pain initially because these biologics are oftentimes causing inflammation before taking inflammation away. And then as time proceeds, as you do your rehab, as you do your exercises, then that pain relief may take place over time. So it could be a matter of a few weeks, but more often than not, it's actually one, two, three months down the road that patients start to really feel benefit. And uh, I don't remember what Chris's timeline was, but in the case of him, the injury, a big part of this is also how recent was the energy and what was the severity yeah. that plays into the timeline. Um, and you have a whole philosophy on that that you've shared with me before, which I'm going to talk about in a second. Um, but in the case of uh, uh, our buddy Chris, uh, what was his timeline and how many injections did he need of PRP? And I guess that begs the question of if you start to see that somebody's not getting 100% better or not as fast as you want, do you do further injections of PRP? Yeah. So uh, quite frankly, Chris was a few years ago, so I don't remember exactly what we did with him. Um, but I, I know he only had one injection. Yeah. Well, it was one procedure. One so procedure. Was, sorry. Yeah. One procedure, multiple injections Correct. of different PRP. Correct. So it was multiple injections, one, one procedure. Um, and then we waited and, and wanted to see how things progressed. So the first couple of weeks are typically ups and downs. Then you gradually start to have improvement from there. And, and I follow up with my patients at around the one to two month mark to see what, what trajectory are you going in? If you're starting to feel benefit, you're going in the right direction, then, then great, run with it. Keep on doing your physical therapy, keep on building on the exercise and get back to doing what you wanna do. But if things are going very, very slowly, or if you have improvement and plateau, then those are the circumstances that I would consider doing repeat injections. There's some folks that say you have to do a series of injections. There's really no research to support that at this juncture. Um, so we, I, I tend to want to see how the biological effect is, is, is taking place first. And with stem cells, is it often similar thought and things so that you do one procedure initially, depending on the area and if somebody's a good candidate for it, 
and then also waiting and sort of seeing the approach? Or is it that we know with stem cells, there often has to be more treatments? Like, how does it work with stem cells? It's similar. It's similar. So it, it ultimately depends on the severity of the condition. Um, so if somebody has severe, severe knee arthritis and we're trying to prevent knee replacement, chances are we'll do an initial stem cell treatment or we may do a combination of stem cells and PRP to treat the various areas of the joint. Um, but there, there may be a chance that repeat PRP is going to happen, have to take place down the road. Why is that? Because like I said before, we're not reversing the knee arthritis. We're not growing back the knee joint. It still has arthritis and, and the local stem cells aren't going to be the greatest. So of course, we want to deal with the biomechanics of how you're moving to try to you know, elongate the benefit from this type of procedure. But ultimately, you may still be putting funny pressure into that joint. There's still going to be some lingering inflammation that takes place. So putting additional biologics down the road could be beneficial. And that goes for either PRP or stem cells. Um, but, you know, if we're treating an ACL tear, for example, that's more of an acute injury on a younger patient, then doing one stem cell treatment may be enough to provide healing. Yeah, and it's fascinating to talk about these as a whole and see these emerging. I really see this as like we have, um, I mean, just when it comes to the landscape of medicine, and uh, I have to clarify for people, of course, I'm not, even though I'm Indian, I'm not a medical doctor. I'll leave that up to <laughs> Shanak, Dr. Shanak Patel. Uh, people get confused sometimes and they send me a DM, Dr. Uh, Dr. Drew, that was a great interview. I'm like, hold up, I'm not a doctor, never wanted to be a doctor, but I'll interview them. Um <laughs> I love doing these podcasts because one, it gives me an opportunity to, I know so many incredible practitioners that truly have a heart of a teacher and are helping people and have worked with friends of mine. And so a lot of the people that we've had in the podcast are people like that, including yourself. And I have them discuss in a very balanced way, these areas and not just be a cheerleader for stem cells are amazing. Everything's amazing. You know, yeah. everybody should do it out there. It's not like that. You have to really figure it out and go to somebody that you trust, but along with it, that give larger sort of themes that we can all take, even if we're not interested in, if we don't have severe pain right now, or if we're not interested in stem cells or PRP, everybody often has, the older you get, there's going to be some pains. And I don't know, I don't know if you remember this analogy that you shared with me or the story was, you know, when I was saying like, what are the most proactive things that people can do? Should they be on like these supplements or this? And you were like, look, a good diet important and anti-inflammatory diet for a whole bunch of other reasons. But for a lot of people, if they're being honest with themselves, especially if they play sports or anything like that, or did anything sort of physically extraneous, sometimes people have a pain. It's not bad yet. I'm, I'm an example of that. I have a knee thing where if I'm on the dance floor at a wedding, right? Yeah. Or if I'm out and really working out intensely over the course of like a week and I'm not stretching as much or I hadn't made it to the chiropractor that, that week, I feel the flare up of that pain. Mm -hmm. And you were saying that one of the best things that people could do is take that seriously now and don't wait to come and see you, yeah, right? Or don't wait to come to see somebody else or their own physician when the pain is extreme and they're later on in their years, which could be two, 20, 50 years from now, Work with somebody in physical therapy. Work with somebody now on that thing now. Don't let it build up. Absolutely. 
I think that's a great point. And, and I, uh, you're not the only one with a knee issue. I, I, I tore my meniscus snowboarding a couple of years ago. And, and every once in a while, I, I, I'm uh, do what I say, not what I do type of person because I don't work out enough. And when I don't, I feel that pain too, right? Um, but it's, it's one of those things that being proactive with ourselves is very, very important. Um, especially this day and age with you know high intensity interval training, CrossFit type of stuff, we see patients all the time that, oh yeah, you know my back goes out every year. Okay, you know I'm in pain for a day or two, and then it goes away, so I don't do anything about it. Um, but we need to be proactive at those times because that's something that's going on, that's something that's simmering, and that might not be super painful at this point, but. You might be walking just a little bit funny because of that, or you know, you, your knee might be a little bit unstable over time because we're not dealing with something that's there. Or if your back is going out every once in a while, the nerve might be getting irritated, which is causing your muscles to not work properly. And, and all these things build up. And then all of a sudden, you're going to the doctor for the first time because you bent over to piece, pick up a piece of paper and your back goes out for a few weeks at a time and now your doc's saying that you need surgery, right? So it's, it's, it's that type of scenario that we want to try to be proactive about when we have little pains here and there. I had a wake-up call. Uh, I would always be active. I'd do paddle boarding. I'd do hiking. But I never had really focused on my strength training up until about two years ago. I, started, I met a really great trainer. His name is Corey. And uh, I met him through actually my childhood doctor and really started focusing on the foundational, foundational elements of my strength to build up more muscle and just to have just to feel more stronger and more in my body. Yeah. Uh, prior to that, a year before, two years before, I had come back from a long flight from England and I slept funny that night and I woke up the next day and I had this buzzing sensation mm. on the right side of my body. And I uh, talked to my uh, business partner at the time, uh, still my business partner, Dr. Mark Hyman, just kind of get a couple things, ask a couple friends, a lot of my family's uh, doctors. And they're like, okay, it looks like it could be like a pinched nerve of some sort. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's a sciatic pain. Maybe it's something, uh, you know, because you eat well, do these other stuff. You've probably been sitting a lot. You've probably put some pressure. And then that last final straw was sleeping weird, yeah. but it had been building up over a while. And even like a, 0.1 of a millimeter could be enough that could cause that if it's if it's building up over a period of time. It's a tipping point. It's the tipping point. It's mm -hmm. a tipping point. The glass overfills and then everything spills over. Yep. So I went to, uh, I was referred to a center here in Los Angeles, a really great uh, chiropractor, and she runs a center called O2 Chiropractic. Mm -hmm. I went in, she did an analysis, and she saw basically how my discs were mis uh, misaligned and a few things and said, okay, you know, come in, do these treatments, and let's see, I think with this, I see this pretty often. I think you have this pitched nerve here. This was a while ago, I don't remember exactly. Did some of the manipulation, um, and uh, first treatment, still felt same as I did before, a little bit of pressure relieved. Came back, second treatment, third third treatment, it went away. Yeah. And she's saying, these are this is a bigger issue that's going on. If the amount that you're sitting at as an entrepreneur, you're in the desk, and you're at the office, Sometimes you start at seven and you go until 7 p.m. Yeah. You're just sitting more than human beings were designed to sit. So now you have to figure out what do you want to do proactively in the rest of your life to try to strengthen that or counteract that? Can you stand sometimes? Can you be doing these stretching breaks? She gave me a bunch of stretching components. 
So that was what was working for me. That's what worked for me. Yeah. And I now regularly, because I feel the difference, I go and see her once every month, every month and a half, just as a proactive measure. And um, and that's that's been very helpful for me. When you talk, think about that person that has knee pain, back pain, other stuff. Obviously, we can't, there's so many listeners, we can't diagnose people, nor would we diagnose people from a distance. Sure. But what are some of the things that they should be thinking about and who should they consider seeing if the pain is there, but it's not bad enough to get some of these deeper modalities to uh, intervene? I think that's a, a great question. And and first of all, thank you for sharing that, that experience of yours, you know, because um, I think more often than not, we all have these type of experiences that 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 linger in the back of our mind, but we don't do anything about it. So I'm, I'm glad that you got the help that you needed. Right. Um, the important thing is trying to find that help. Now, some people will argue that if you have this kind of back pain or sciatica issue or whatever, there's a chance that it's going to go away on its own in a few days or a few weeks or whatever. And, and that's true to a certain extent. Um, so a lot of people just wait it out, you know, waiting a couple of days, seeing how the pain goes. Um, or taking some Tylenol or, God forbid, some other stronger medications, right? That might be enough for the pain to go away. But being proactive, if that happens once and you don't ever see it again, all right, maybe it was a fluke. But if you're having these occurrences, little low-grade things, then seeing a chiropractor, but not just any chiropractor, somebody that's focused on the proactive in terms of you doing things for yourself, um, there are a lot of chiropractors that are out there that say, hey, you have this back pain condition. You're going to have to come to me three days a week for the next nine to 10 months. Um, or for the rest of your life. Or for the rest of your life. Yeah. And and then you'll have no pain. And quite frankly, you know, God bless you if you're a chiropractor listening to this and that's the way that you practice and you're getting results by all means. Um, but I like the chiropractors like you, like you went to. He was that, teaching me how to fish. Exactly. Exactly. You know, really important to, to treat yourself. And that, that's a huge <laughs> component. Treat yourself. Treat yourself. Treat yourself before you wreck yourself. Um, so, but physical therapists um, yeah. and physical therapists can be really, really good on that. Yeah. Um, and again, there are good physical therapists, bad physical therapists. If, if you go to a physical therapist and they, you know, give you a massage and put you in a corner and say, hey, do these exercises or put some electrical stimulus on you for 45 minutes and then you're good to go. That's not the type of person that you want to see. You want to see somebody that's going through the exercises with you and saying, all right, these are the things that you're going to have to then do on your own at home. Helping you get an understanding of your range of mobility. Absolutely. How far you are. And then also physical therapists or chiropractors, we did an entire episode with Dr. Shalini Bott on this, a dear friend of mine from Toronto who runs the Movement Boutique. Anybody up in Toronto, definitely check her out. Chiropractor, but who very much focuses on fascia and the connective tissue and how a pain in your back actually might be related to heels that you're wearing and the tightening of fascia in your legs. Yeah that makes its way up to the back. It's it's not often that the root issue is in the same region that the pain is. That's the intersection. Absolutely. But uh, the root issue could come from somewhere else and somebody with a deep understanding of fascia or other components of understanding the body as a whole system is gonna be able to help you figure out based on your range of mobility or other factors where the root really might be and how every part of the body is something that they need to be working on. I think that's a, a very important point. First of all, 
the fascia is is the most prevalent organ that we neglect in medical school. Um, you know, even being an osteopath and and focusing on fascia for a lot of our training, um, still it's kind of the, something that's completely neglected, right? Um, but you're right. One thing somewhere can lead to other things elsewhere. Um, even nerve irritation in the low back when people aren't feeling sciatica or back pain may be contributing to somebody's knee pain, right? And all of these things are connected. If you're having these issues, low-grade issues, um, if you want to be proactive, you can't go to a doc that's only going to see you for five minutes and say, okay, there's nothing wrong with your imaging. You don't do anything. Or, you know, there's, there is something wrong with your imaging and you have to get surgery, right? You have to go to somebody that's going to spend the time to actually examine you, look at you biomechanically and evaluate, all right, these are the options that you have for you moving forward. And unfortunately, we're in this landscape. It'll change one day, but with, uh, you know, it takes about on average, I've heard the stats of being 15 to 17 years or 12 to 17 years before yeah. things that have studies and that we know work make their way down to like the the doctor level or the hospital level system. So unfortunately right now, a lot of people who are dealing with that, they often do have to come out of pocket. My insurance didn't cover the chiropractor that I wanted to see. She right. wasn't in network, but she was integrative. And I really felt that she was going to be the person to help me. So I had to come out of pocket and pay for it. But I'm so glad I paid now versus dealing not you know not dealing with it or getting the wrong treatment, and then having having to pay a lot more later on in lost productivity or other things that could um, affect the pain. Yeah, and the the insurance world is is interesting, right? Because these day and age with these high deductible plans, you may be paying out of pocket until you meet your deductible for you know a significant amount for these small ten minute visits that you go to your traditional doctor. Um, but perhaps paying out of pocket to get the right help that's that's necessary uh, may be the way to go. Um, coming back to stem cells, then I want to get some just big picture conclusion thoughts, things sure. like that. Uh, stem cells PRP, it's definitely still a wild, wild west. We just did an episode. I forgot who the folks are, but uh, we'll include in the show notes. We also did, a, a Dr. Hyman had some stem cells uh, done for some, components that he was working on and he went to a facility in Utah and they had a whole conversation on that. So that's further listening that's out there. Uh, stem cells and PRP, just since we're talking about insurance and that sort of stuff, uh, insurance is not going to cover them. Those are things that usually people are going to pay out of pocket. Correct. Right. Can you give us the range? I mean, obviously it's based on like how long something needs to be treated and how many treatments they have, but for initial treatment, um, is one more expensive than the other? And how do you talk about costs with that when it comes to patients that are out there that are coming to just understand the landscape? So PRP stem cells, you're right. It is a wild west. And just like it's a wild west in terms of the, the what people are claiming, what research is there, what treatments are there, it's also the wild west in terms of cost. Um, it Currently, these are not covered by insurance. However, there are actually some insurance plans that are starting to cover PRP in various conditions. Uh, there's a rumor that there's some Kaiser facilities that are starting to cover PRP. Um, but we also have to wonder what quality of the PRP is it is and, and what is it that the insurance companies are actually covering. So the way that insurance companies seem to be starting to cover PRP is as if it's a cortisone injection. So one injection with or without image guidance to see exactly where you're going and just injecting the area. But as I mentioned earlier, when we're treating a specific joint, we want to treat all aspects of that with the biologics. So that may not be covered by insurance. 
So as insurance is starting to cover it, you know, we, we may or may not having the best potential treatments that are being covered, unfortunately. Um, so that being said, our treatments can vary significantly. Um, uh, at, at our office, we can have for PRP anywhere between the thousand and two thousand dollar mark um, for a PRP treatment that can that can address one body region, um, like the tennis elbow or the knee or the back. If it's one body region, one initial treatment, you know, could be in the couple thousand dollar range. It, exactly, and and spine treatments become so much more multifactorial that that ends up being a little bit more expensive, um, even with PRP alone, um, because we are using X-ray guidance, flora, uh, which is fluoroscopy, using ultrasound guidance, um, and and targeting multiple different areas. The treatment may take an hour to an hour and a half to do. Um, and, and that's much more involved than just doing an epidural injection in one area. Okay. Um, stem cell treatments are more expensive. Um, the, the only legal stem cell treatment in the U S is from a patient's own bone marrow. Um, so that is the, the type of, uh, stem cell treatments that, that I do in my office. Um, there are some fat treatments, um, that aren't technically stem cells, um, that people are doing and, and the, the cost for that varies significantly. So anywhere between the $4,000 mark and the $10,000 mark, um, for, for various types of stem cell treatments. Um, and oftentimes I combine stem cells with PRP, um, in, in that, in that range. Yeah. With all these things and quickly, uh, the price adding up more of an important, uh, point to really just go to somebody that you trust and knows what they're doing. Uh, you're here in Los Angeles. If people are elsewhere or they can't fly in or they're looking for local options, you know, is there, um, you know, for functional medicine doctors, there's the uh, Institute of Functional Medicine website and like find a practitioner. Sure. And even within that, we're always very honest, you know, functional medicine doctors training can range greatly in terms of what they know. Are there resources that you point out there to people who are looking for these modalities and want to explore it and can't always make it to, uh, you know, a bigger city like Los Angeles or live far away or live overseas? There are definitely some resources. Um, first, there's a few organizations that um, that have members that I think that I would trust on the for the for the most part. Um, there's also things that you as a patient can look out for are kind of flags to 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 deter you from a specific place or or attract you to a certain place. So um, some organizations that that have high quality physicians, uh, there's a, a and full disclosure, I, I teach uh, for this one. It's called the Interventional Orthopedics Foundation. It's a non for profit organization that that teaches physicians how to do these procedures appropriately. Um, that uh, IOF uh, has a membership database that is available on its website. IOF.org or something like that. We'll look it up and we'll yeah. put it in the show notes. It's, uh, yeah, it's called Interventional Orthopedics Foundation. If you type that in, then, then it'll come up. Got it. Um, then uh, there is another organization called the American Association of Orthopedic Medicine. Um, uh, of which I've been a member, um, uh, but I'm not involved with. Um, they uh, seem to be doing things the right way. Um, uh, I am a part of a, an international network called Regenex um, that has physicians that try to uh, approach the whole body, approach the whole functional unit of the various joints and, and spine, et cetera. Um, and, and generally speaking, going to physicians' websites and, and looking for things that sound like they're doing things the right way, as well as things that sound like they're doing things the wrong way. So doing things the right way, um, saying that they are collecting their data. 
Um, I think data is a very, very important thing. Like on the outcomes of what these patients are going through? Correct, absolutely. Um, there's a lot of uh, uh, physicians that are out there that are doing these treatments and, and they're collecting no data on, on how their patients are doing. So how can you possibly claim that they're doing things the appropriate way? Right? And when you collect that data, are you publishing it anywhere? Are you posting it anywhere? Can people see it? Yeah, so in, on, in my company and in, in our organization, Regenix, we um, have published nearly 50% of the world's data on uh, bone marrow stem cells for orthopedic conditions. Um, but there are other organizations that are um, taking their data and publishing that. Uh, and that, that is a very, very important thing to consider. Um, there are new databases that are formulating and, and popping up uh, that look really, really promising that's going to be able to um, attract data from other organizations, other clinics, so that we can kind of pool our data and see how people are doing overall with various treatments. They're just going to people's websites and seeing that they're collecting the data is a first step. Um, on the other hand, if somebody's website says that 90% of their patients get better, that's kind of a flag. Right. Or God forbid, if somebody says that 100 percent of their patients are getting better, which I've seen on websites, that's a flag. Right. Or somebody who's like, you know, stem cells, the treatment that everybody's been waiting for or something talks about it from right. a standpoint of like this silver bullet. Right. That everybody can benefit from. Right. Or or statements like I will treat your knee arthritis, but I'll also treat your Alzheimer's and your diabetes and your son's, you know, autism. Right. These are things that are still very young in the research field. But for one clinic and one physician to be offering all of those in one house with one package, meh, you got to be a little bit skeptical about that. Totally. One of the things I wanted to ask you about on stem cells is the question about what stem cells are legal. And when it comes to marketing, sometimes you hear different terms like umbilical cord stem cells, living stem cells. Just shine the light on that. There's a lot of uh, uh, confusion, I think, in that subject. Uh, there's a lot of confusion. And, and talking, going back to what you were saying about it being the Wild West, this is really where it's the Wild West in, in regenerative medicine. Um, I, the, the only legal type of quote unquote stem cells per the FDA are when you use your own bone marrow from the from the patient um, in a same day procedure. Literally injecting a needle into their spine. They're often facing down. Yeah. So it's not the spine. It's in, I'm sorry, it's in, in the, the pelvis. In the back. pelvis. Yeah. The back of the pelvis. Um, it's a needle type device that's used to extract from within the bone. Uh, most people cringe at the idea of it. Um, but quite frankly, most uh, patients say that it's about a three out of 10 in terms of pain. So not not horrible. Yeah. Um, and I do this with just local uh, local uh, anesthetic. So it's it's not like I'm putting you out for the procedure or whatnot. Um, regardless, using that bone marrow is, and, and using that for an orthopedic condition is considered legit by the FDA. Okay, um, There are people that are using fat for stem cells, and the act of actually getting the stem cells from the fat is considered illegal by the FDA because you have to use chemical to digest it, and, and we don't quite know 100% what exactly that's doing, and although there is a little bit of growing research on that. There are fat procedures that are allowed by FDA, but those are not technically considered stem cells. They're just using fat graft. And then there's finally these birth products, these umbilical cord, uh, cord blood, uh, Wharton's jelly, embryonic, uh, placental, all these kind of things. Which the vast majority are coming from when a woman gives birth. Yeah. So it's third trimester pregnancy or during birth. Um, you know, in third trimester pregnancy, you can get an amniotic fluid sample, which contains cells. 
um, or when the baby is born, um, a lot of times when you're when you're given birth, you're given the option to donate your uh, umbilical cells or your cord blood for for research. Um, so those there's there's been kind of a, a growth of companies out of this um, that have have been taking that. Um, cleaning those solutions essentially, packaging them into a vial for physicians to use in various different ways. Um, and the way that they've created these products to be safe for uh, patients, they either use gamma radiation or they use a freeze and, and thaw of these products. And, and that process ultimately kills almost all, if not all, the living stem cells from those products. Um, if they were living stem cells, then the FDA would be a huge other process that takes multiple years and clinical trials in order for that to be allowed. Um, so the way that they've skirted that is that these products don't actually contain living stem cells. And that's actually been confirmed with third-party testing, Cornell University, as well as a paper that was published in the American Journal of Sports Medicine um, that show that these products actually do not contain living stem cells. But there's a ton of clinics that are saying that they contain living stem cells, number one, and number two, saying that they'll cure everything under the sun with these products. Um, and there's some shady practices where they'll literally take an X-ray of a joint and show the joint space, um, and then they'll take a repeat X-ray after the injection, measure the joint space from a completely different area, and say that, okay, your joint has grown or your, your arthritis has gone away um, because of these magic stem cells, so to speak. Another just reminder about anytime something's emerging in any area or field that has a lot of promise, there's always going to be people that take in another direction. And so that you don't end up getting fleeced, you just really have to do your homework. Absolutely. And and if, if something sounds too good to be true, chances are it's too good to be true. Um, the amount of people that I tell that are that I see as patients and I tell are not candidates is profound. Um, you know, and, and I, I shoot from the hip when I see a patient. I say, look, these are your odds based off of our data that we've collected. If somebody's saying that they're going to do an injection and grow you back a, a joint um, and they're using products that, that are suspicious, then you got to be wary of that. Totally. Dr. Patel, thank you for coming on the podcast and breaking down the landscape of pain management and all these regenerative medicine tools in the toolbox, including stem cells, PRP, other solutions that are out there. It was a great conversation and a really good one to add to our series on pain, stress, and addiction. If people want to find you, how can they uh, look you up? Um, on social media, I'm at Stem Cell Dr. Patel, Stem Cell D R P A T E L. Um, our website is www.healthlinkcenter.com. Amazing. And you have blogs and articles and other things like that that people can read on there. Absolutely. Articles, blogs, all our data is available on our website as well. Great. And if you're in the Los Angeles area, you're looking for somebody, you can feel free to reach out to his office and they can chat with you about it or check out those other uh, websites in the show notes for um, other options of databases where potentially they could find somebody. Absolutely. Uh, Dr. Patel, thank you for being here. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Hi, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Just a reminder, this podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast is not, I repeat, it's not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or otherwise qualified medical professional. This podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you're looking for help in your journey, seek out a qualified medical practitioner. 
If you're looking for a functional medicine practitioner, you can visit ifm.org and search their find a provider database. It's important that you have somebody in your corner that's qualified, that's trained, that's a licensed healthcare practitioner helping you make changes, especially when it comes to your health.